very good. So it's now three o'clock. There'd always be some people coming late, but that's fine. So today is a Sutta class afternoon, but this is going to be the, the last Sutta class before the Rains Retreat. The Rains Retreat starts in a week or two's time, and in the time when we have the next uh, scheduled second week of the month, that Sunday we'll be holding our entry to the Rains Retreat at Bodhinyana Monastery. So because of that, there won't be any more Sutta classes until after the Rains Retreat is complete. And because of that, and because I've just started doing these range retreats, these sort of these Sutta classes again, I thought that I'd do a golden oldie, which I have um, uh, taught before here, the Nalakapana Sutta. And the reason which I chose this particular Sutta today was because it is a powerful Sutta which is underestimated in the practice of the Dhamma to be able to get into deep meditations, I'm talking about the jhanas, in order to um, see deep insights, you have to suppress or eradicate these five hindrances. And those five hindrances, just in brief, are um, wanting, especially wanting in regards to the five senses, ill will, sloth and torpor, restlessness and remorse, and doubt. And uh, as I think it was actually Ajahn Bamali pointed out many years ago, he said, you can consider the path of practice of a Buddhist uh, to learn how to understand these five hindrances, suppress them enough to get into a deep meditation to overcome these hindrances completely. And I will be giving some uh, instances of how when these five hindrances are active, even your bare awareness, what you see for yourself, cannot be trusted. And by that I mean that these five hindrances are almost like the, the force which distorts your perception and your thinking. So you don't see what's there, you see what you want to see, or you block out what you don't want to see, or you're so restless or so dull that again your mind is uh, perverted by those things. You can't see clearly. And also I'll say a little bit about doubt as well, because I thought that doubt could be overcome through knowledge, through good instructions. But it's much more refined than that. You don't overcome doubt just through knowledge, because when doubt is overcome, it's you see the world in a totally different way. It's strange, it's weird, many years couldn't recognize you know, why, when you have some experience in meditation, the best way I can uh, say it is you know it's true. It's a certain amount of clarity there. You're not imagining this, you're not sort of fantasizing or dreaming. It is actually real. It's that quality of experience which is more real and trustworthy than normal. 
and because of that it's an important hindrance to overcome. So when you actually are experiencing things, you can trust them as real evidence for the nature of reality, for truth, for instance, for insight, for the Dhamma. And that's why the five hindrances are so important to understand and also to be able to overcome. Even these days when people say, oh, they had this experience and that experience, you can actually see from the hindrances which are left inside of them, whether they have really penetrated to anything very deep. So, it's an important part of the Dhamma, and in this sutta is many other parts of it as well, but it's the part with the hindrances, which are the ones which I'm really focusing on. So, here we go. Namo tasa bhagavato Alahato Sama Sambodasa Namo Tasa Bhagavato Alahato Sama Sambodasa Namo Tasa Bhagavato Alahato Sama Sambodasa Buddhang Dhammang Sankang Namasami So, at Nalakapana, thus have I heard. On one occasion, the Buddha was living in the Kosalan country at Nalakapana in the Palaza Grove. In all of the suttas, when the Buddha was alive, the event may have happened in another place. Sometimes it happens where the Buddha was if he taught the sutta, but they always mention where the Buddha was living, the Kosalan country. Uh, also contain the big capital, Sawati. Now on that occasion, many, many very well-known clansmen had gone forth out of faith from the home life into homelessness under the Buddha. The Venerable Anuruddha, the Venerable Nandiya, the Venerable Kimbala, the Venerable Bhagu, the Venerable Kundadana, and Venerable Revata, the Venerable Ananda, and other very well-known clansmen. And of those, just to um, make it clear, that Venerable Anuruddha, that he was one of these monks uh, who was a cousin of the Buddha, but he was also, um, had incredibly good karma from his previous life. In his previous life, because he'd been generous and made so much merit, that uh, he determined that uh, in this next life, which was the life he was called Anuruddha, that he would never hear the word, there is nothing. There is nothing, uh, in Pali, was called Nati. He would never hear the word Nati. And so because of that, in his uh, last life, where he became a monk, in his last life, before he was a monk, he told the story in the... Uh, Theragata, the stories of the enlightened monks and enlightened nuns also, that there he told the story that uh, he was playing a game with his friends, like marbles, and he kept on losing. And he would gamble his lunch on who would win the game of marbles, and he soon lost all the food he had for his lunch. But because he was from a wealthy family, 
he asked you know, the guardian and servant, basically, please go home and ask my mother for some more cakes. And off the servant went and came back a little bit later with some more cakes. He gambled those as well and also lost them all. Please go back and get some more cakes. So the servant went back, got some more cakes, and then he gambled those, and they were all lost. So once again, sent the servant back, go and ask my mother for some more cakes. And then the mother said, there are no more cakes, natty cakes. And so the servant went back to see uh, Anuruddha, little kid. He had his basket with a cloth over the top, and because of the karmic force that he wouldn't hear the word natty or that wouldn't understand there is nothing, that the heavenly beings had to intervene and they put heavenly cakes in the basket because the mother didn't have any. And so they put heavenly cakes in the basket and when the servant reached Anuruddha, he said, natty cakes, there aren't cakes. But Anuruddha had to look for himself and there he saw the most delicious, fragrant cakes, they were heavenly cakes, you could possibly imagine. And so he took one of those and he said, my mother doesn't love me, she's been hiding these special cakes for me all my life. And that was the end of the story where like natty cakes would really mean nothing, but they made something out of nothing. So for Anuruddha, natty cakes always became something rather than the absence of something. And I've always quoted that story to understand other things where they are trying to signify, words trying to signify the absence of something, not the presence of something else. But no, that was Anuruddha. And Anuruddha, Nandi and Kimbala, they were famous for living in a monastery, just the three of them, and that they would hardly talk to one another. They would just know what needed to be done and they would always be very helpful and kept such a simple life and that when the Buddha came to visit them, that they, um, the, the, the gatekeeper of that monastery said, shh, no, you can't come in. There's three monks here and they're really sort of practicing well. And Anuruddha happened to hear that gatekeeper say, no, that's the Buddha, let him in. He's not an ordinary visitor. And so the Buddha actually praised Anuruddha, Nandi and Kimbala for how well they were practicing and how harmonious they were. They hardly needed to speak at all because of the, the harmony. That's just why I sometimes come to Dhamma Loka on the weekend and see all the people here, they don't talk to one another and I take that as being they're living in harmony together. <laughs> Is that true, Bill? Or oh, no comment? <laughs> okay. So anyway, that was the harmony. And the Buddha also said to them, Have you, how's your meditation and insight going? And they said some wonderful things about their meditation. And the Buddha said, that's what you can expect when people are living in harmony together and they're looking after one another and they're practicing well together. So there were three of my hero monks when I read that story years and years and years ago. And anyway, these were uh, many monks had gone out from the home life into homelessness. And that occasion the Buddha was seated in the open surrounded by the Sangha of Bhikkhus. Then referring to those particular monks, he addressed the Bhikkhus thus, 
because those clansmen have gone forth out of faith from the home life into homelessness under me. Do they delight in the holy life? <coughs> oh, two fingers. Huh? Oh, it's not, it's not scrolling up. Arrow down. No. It usually does it by fingers. On there. Okay, on that one, okay. Not on the screen. Okay. Okay. And those bhikkhus were silent. And the second time, a third time, referring to those clansmen, he addressed the monks thus. Bhikkhus, those clansmen who have gone forth out of faith from the home life into homelessness under me, do they delight in the holy life? And for a second or third time, those bhikkhus were silent. Then the bhikkhu Buddha con considered thus, suppose I question those clansmen. Then he addressed the Venom Anuruddha thus, Anuruddha, do you delight in the holy life? Surely, Venerable Sir, we delight in the holy life. Sometimes people think that being a monk or being a nun is hard work. It sometimes is hard work, but there's a lot of what we'd call these days job satisfaction. You do delight in the holy life. Good, good, Anuruddha. It is proper for all you clansmen who have gone forth out of faith from home life into homelessness to delight in the holy life. As you are still endowed with the blessing of youth, like me. <laughs> I'm not lying, that's just a joke. The blessing of youth, black-haired, young men in the prime of life. You could have indulged in sensual pleasures, yet you have gone forth from the home life into homelessness. It is not because you have been driven by kings that you have gone forth from the home life into homelessness or because you have been driven by thieves or owing to debt, fear or want of a livelihood. Rather, did you not go forth out of faith from the home life into homelessness after considering thus? I am a victim of birth, ageing and death, of sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief and despair. I am a victim of, victim of suffering, a prey to suffering. Surely an ending of this whole mass of suffering can be known. Yes, Venerable Sir. Sometimes people ask, myself and my fellow monk next to me, Venerable Sarata, other monks and nuns, why did you become a monk or a nun? Why did you go forth? And that's the answer, to find an ending of this whole mass of suffering. Not to escape from debtors or escape from problems in the home, not just to get a livelihood, but to find the cause of suffering and its ending. What should be done, Anuruddha, by a clansman who has gone forth thus? While he's, and this is the important part of the sutta for me. What should be done, Anuruddha, by a clansman who has gone forth thus? While he still does not attain to the rapture and pleasure 
that are secluded from the five senses and secluded from unwholesome states, which means the first jhana. That's a nice little uh, description of it in brief. The rapture and pleasure secluded from the five senses and secluded from unwholesome states. Or to something more peaceful than that, otherwise, in other words, the higher jhanas, desire invades his mind and remains. Ill will invades his mind and remains. Sloth and torpor invade the mind and remain. Restlessness and remorse invade the mind and remain. And doubt invades the mind and remain. Those are the five hindrances. Plus, discontent, this arity, invades the mind and remains. And weariness, tandi, invades the mind and remains. That is so, while they still do not attain to the first jhana or, or to something more peaceful than that. But when he does, or she does, attain to the first jhana or something more peaceful than that, desire does not invade the mind and remain. Ill will, sloth and torpor, restlessness and remorse, doubt, or oh. Did that last time? Yeah. Where's that gone? Yeah. No. No, it didn't work. Thank you. It sometimes goes up the top too tight. How come it works for you? Don't wrong with my fingers. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I'm too fast. Okay, I'm a fast monk. Thank you. And discontent and weariness invade the mind and remain. That is so while you still do not attain to the first jhana or to something more peaceful than that. But when you do attain to the first jhana or to something more peaceful than that, desire does not invade the mind and remain. Ill will, sloth and torpor, restlessness and remorse, doubt and discontent, weariness do not invade the mind and remain. That is so when you attain to the first jhana or, or to something more peaceful than that. So as well as the five jhanas, we're also having this discontent and weariness. It's something which you would notice when you meditate. You might start meditating um, tired, but after a while, energy comes up. That weariness, you know, tiredness, just gets abolished. And I've known many times, myself and others who've got into nice meditations, that afterwards you got so full of energy. Often, you can't go to sleep at night. You're not sort of uh, restless, perfectly poised, joyful, happy, lots of energy because that um, tiredness, the weariness, is just abandoned. It's like you, you know, had a strong cup of, cup of tea or coffee, but without the sort of tension inside the mind. It has a natural energy to it. That is what happens when you get these nice meditations. And of course, if you want to use those meditations to see very clearly and understand, sometimes it does take time. And to have that weariness, that tiredness, are absent for a day or two, 
that's really helpful for you to be able to penetrate to dhammas without getting tired by all this um, being alive. And also the discontent doesn't come up. There's a sense of you're engaged in the world, that you're enjoying it and everything is very satisfying. It's one of the reasons why that you, if you've been on some of the retreats I've taught, many times people like claim to have got good meditations. They, attain, they say they've attained some really deep meditations like Ajahnas. And you've heard how I check out to see the truth of what they've been saying. I, I sometimes try to offend them in a kind way. You know, I say that, oh, like Australian people, oh, let's make it more interesting, say Polish people cannot get jhanas. <laughs> or something. Then what do you mean Polish people can't get jhanas? What's wrong with Polish people? And if they react like that, you can see they've got some discontent. What they've just heard, they react to. Then I know those hindrances haven't been really abandoned. It probably was not a deep jhana. But if they say, you know, oh, okay, Polish people can't get, get jhanas, that's fair enough, because I did anyway. I don't care what you say, Ajahn Brahm. They don't have that discontent, then that's a good sign. Okay, maybe they have had that deep meditation. And that's also one of the ways we check if a person's been enlightened or not. Sorry, but I cannot resist some of these stories, even though they only just slightly fit into what we're supposed to be talking about this evening. And that was, or this afternoon, and that was that story of that uh, monk in China many years ago. You know, he'd got his basic training, his meditation was okay, so he asked his uh, abbot, There's a, there is an island in the lake not far away from here, can I please build a simple hut, or maybe a little garden or something, and I want to go in there to have some solitude and meditate deeply so I can become fully enlightened. And uh, all I would ask is once a week an attendant to row the boat over, and if there's anything I need, they can bring it over for me. And the other said, well, how can you ref refuse a request like that someone intent on being enlightened. So he gave permission, the monk made a little hut for himself, and an attendant would row over every morning, and the monk would write out a list what he needed for next week, and that would be brought over the week after. And that's how he survived for about three years. And after three years of solitude, he was convinced he was now fully enlightened. So he decided to tell his abbot that he didn't need to live in the island anymore, he's fully enlightened. So he asked for some uh, paper, a quill pen, quill, and some ink. He wanted to write something to show that he was enlightened. And so that's what the attendant brought over the next week, and the monk meditated very deeply. When he came out of meditation, he wrote the poem in four lines. The diligent monk, in solitude for three years, is no longer moved by the four worldly winds. The four worldly winds means whatever happens in the world, you're totally at peace. You don't react at all. 
is a synonym for enlightenment, a metaphor. So when the attendant came over, he rolled out this little parchment, tied it in a nice uh, ribbon, and asked the attendant to give that to the abbot. And one week later, he got his reply from the abbot. It looked like the same piece of parchment he'd written the original poem on. And when he unfurled it, he saw over the first line, the diligent monk, the abbot, had written in there, in red ballpoint pen, the four letters F-A-R-T, fart. And the second line, in solitude for three years, the abbot had written in a capital letters, F-A-R-T, fart. And over the next one, it's no longer moved. This was F-A-R-T in capitals, underlined. And the fourth line, by the four worldly winds. Big F-A-R-T, underlined with three exclamation marks. And the, <laughs> the monk said, that stupid abbot, he can't even recognize enlightenment when he sees it. This poem took three years to write, and this is what he's done for it. It should really be in a frame in a museum somewhere. So he was so upset, he called out, and the attendant hadn't really left too far away from the landing. So the attendant came back. He said, take me over to see the abbot now. So he was rowed over the lake, stormed into the abbot's office, and then said, slammed the piece of parchment on the table and said, what have you done to this, this work of art, my, my, my expression of enlightenment? And that's when the abbot stood up and said very slowly, he read out the poem, the diligent monk in solitude for three years is no longer moved by the four worldly winds. Yet, monk, four little farts have blown you clean across the lake. <laughs> And he realized he wasn't enlightened. <laughs> That's actually how we test if people are enlightened at all, to, off <laughs> to offend them. It's an interesting story, but it's got some truth to it as well, because if uh, the five hindrances have been suppressed with them, also goes the weariness and the discontent. And if you are a meditator, you go on a retreat, being able to overcome that weariness you know, you're always meditating, and sometimes people push too hard, they get tired. If the five hindrances are gone, then of course that tiredness is not there. Nor is the, the discontent, whatever you eat or whatever happens, you're at ease with everything. But I just wanted to mention more about those five hindrances. So I'll just, this is the Buddhist Dictionary by Nyana Tiloka. The hindrances are five qualities which are obstacles to the mind and blind our mental vision. In their presence, we cannot reach um, upachara samadhi, that's the where we see nimittas, and jhanas are also impossible. And those five hindrances, uh, please listen carefully to what I'm saying, is uh, locate abhija, Vayapada, Tinamida. Were you listening? Because usually it's Karmachanda. I said Loke Abhicha, and I said that for a good purpose. 
if ever you read in the Pali, the Anguttara Nikaya, most times for the first hindrance, they call it loke abhija. It's a synonym for karmachanda. And the reason I mentioned it as loke abhija, if you ever study the Satipatthana Sutta, for each of the four Satipatthanas, you have a prerequisite, a thing to do first. That's vinaya loke abhija dhammanasan. And when I saw that, I thought, what the heck does that mean? It's usually translated as having restrained grief and covetousness for the world, which made no sense to me. But then when you saw the most, two of the words in that, those four words, loke abhija dhammanasang, loke abhija is a synonym for the first hindrance. And dhammanasa is a synonym in two suttas for Vayapada, the second hindrance. And then I don't usually look at commentaries, but I did look at the commentary for both of the Satipatthana suttas, the one in the Diganikaya and the one in the Majjhimanikaya. And in both commentaries, they explain exactly that. The Lokya Bija is a synonym for the first hindrance. Uh, Dhammanasa is a synonym for the second hindrance. They only mention two of those hindrances in the Satipatthana Sutta. But the commentary explains, instead of um, listing the whole five of a very, very well-used list, mentioning the first two, the other three are implied. And both commentaries to both those suttas explain that those, that phrase, vinaya loke abhijadamanasang, should be understood as having restrained the five hindrances. So that's where those five hindrances appear in the Satipatthana Sutta. As some you should have done first before you even start the Satipatthana Sutta as a prerequisite. And those, uh, the idea of vinaya, it comes, it's similar, it's connected to the word of vinaya, the trainings for the monks. If you train to restrain those things, once those things are restrained and they're weak, then of course your mindfulness can be effective. That was so important for me because I couldn't understand why the Buddha said if you practice the Satipatthana even for seven days, you really you know, commit to it, you can become enlightened. So people did that, but they never did become enlightened. Why not? That was one of the reasons why we had these nine-day retreats. One day to settle in, seven days to get enlightened, the last day to celebrate, <laughs> I don't know. But that time they thought, that's enough. But no one does get enlightened on it. Why? Because they have not restrained the five hindrances beforehand. So anyway, the similes of the five hindrances, this is from the Anguttara again, that the first hindrance, karma chand or lokya this wanting which is within the, the realm of the five senses, compared with water mixed with colors, like with dye. So it's not clear and you can't see through it, you can't see to the bottom, red dye or blue dye or something. And ill will with boiling water. If you boil water, again, it's so agitated that you cannot see clearly through it. 
sloth and torpor with water covered by moss, restlessness and remorse with agitated water whipped by the wind, skeptical doubt with turbid and muddy water you can't see clearly. And the, uh, the way that they describe, this is a useful, the, the suspension of the five hindrances, that you have cast away the first hindrances of wanting, you dwell with your heart free from wanting. From wanting you cleanse your mind. Cast away ill will, you dwell with a heart free from ill will, cherishing love and compassion to all the living beings. Cast away sloth and torpor, you dwell with a mind free from sloth and torpor, uh, with light, watching mind, with clear consciousness, you cleanse your mind with sloth and torpor. And cast away restlessness and remorse, dwelling with a mind undisturbed, with heart full of peace. Cast away doubt, uh, full of confidence in the good, you cleanse your heart from, the, the, uh, from doubt. And from that doubt, it means that what you are seeing, what you're experiencing, what you are feeling, it has also the quality of being free from doubt, the emotional addition that this is truth, this is real. Not because you want it to be real, not because you're trying to impress anybody, but it has the experiential addition of truth to it. You don't doubt what you're experiencing and you're not just seeing one part of it and um, distorting the other part. Just even the thing called bare awareness, it's usually not bare awareness. You choose of all the things available to the mind, one way of looking at them, one part of the truth, because the whole scene is just too large for you to absorb into. But with the, the freedom of doubt, you small object, one pointiness, and then you can be very clear that what you are seeing is true. So I went into the five hindrances there, but the most important part of that is that they will only disappear, uh, they will uh, not invade your mind and remain uh, after the deep meditations. And if you don't have experienced those deep meditations, those things will invade your mind and remain. So this is one of the reasons why we do this meditation, to clear our mind from those five hindrances so that we can see the truth unadulterated. Now last week I talked a lot and didn't give you much time for questions. So now, any questions? Yeah. Um, no, it means they can't invade the mind until uh, the time when the energy, the power of that uh, first med uh, deep meditation wears off. It is not permanent uh, suppression of those five hindrances, but it lasts a long time. The deeper of those meditations you go, the more powerful those meditations are, then the longer those five hindrances are just not there. They're absent for a while. It's one of the reasons why you have to be careful that sometimes people get into a deep meditation 
and they feel that they're enlightened. They can't see like desire or ill will and doubt is just not in their mind anymore. But it passes away. I know all those stories, that story again, when I got enlightened after four years as a monk, I thought I was. And <laughs> it really felt like it was great fun. But then the abbot of the monastery I was staying in had these two pots of curry. You only usually have one pot of curry every day. He mixed those two together. One was disgusting rotten fish curry, the other one was a pork curry. I'd love to be a vegetarian, but there was not vegetarian food there. So anyway, he took his first of all, and then he mixed them all up before he passed it to me. And I thought, that's just not on. That's, that's, if you think they're all the same, you mix them up first and then take yours. But he took his first and he gave me this big mixture. I was very angry. But at least I was wise enough to know that enlightened people don't get angry. I was just, I'd suppress the five hindrances for a while, that's all. And now they came up. <laughs> and I was, I was really upset. Not that what he did, but the fact I wasn't enlightened. It's one of the most depressing experiences in monastic life or any life to think you're enlightened and then find out you're not. <laughs> anyway, anyway, that they do it, disappear and rem they do not invade the mind and they don't remain. Their absence remains a long time. Does that answer the question? Is there any more questions around here? Oh, yeah. Yeah, go on. Uh, I'm sorry about Polish. Polish people can get into well, I'm dimitis. Only I'm only half Polish. So half okay, Polish. you can half get into <laughs> you get into half a jhana. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, the story about the the monk uh, in his past life with the cakes. Oh yeah. And about natty cakes and there being something in the basket. What, what's the what was the meaning behind that? The meaning behind that is that sometimes the people think of like cessation. This is when we talk about what happens you know, after a person becomes enlightened and passes away. What happens to their consciousness is their perception, their karma. And when you say, there is none afterwards, it's gone. I say, oh, natty. I think that is something afterwards. They say, like, there's no conditioning, no death anymore. They think that's a deathless. Oh, you go to this wonderful state of natty cakes. <laughs> That's a simile. We always tend to make something out of nothing. And nothing when things are absent are very scary for us. That's one of the reasons why we soon get used to renunciation when things disappear and nothing is left. And that nothingness, real nothingness, you always remember that time when Ajahn Chah asked me, Brahma Wangsa, why? And the answer was, there's nothing. He really meant that. Not that nothing is a place where you can go to and live happily ever after. It's not another word for heaven. <laughs> that some people go to some heaven and the Buddhists go to the Nati heaven. <laughs> does that make, make sense to you, what I'm saying about? Yeah, it does, yeah. Okay, yeah. Something in, in oh yeah, no. It, yeah, it's just this is what we do. Yeah. The other story which I used for that was Alice in Wonderland. When Alice arrives at the square of the Red Queen, and 
the Red Queen asked, did you see my messenger? Did, uh, did you see anyone on the road here? And she replied, I saw no one on the road. Oh, that must be my messenger. And said, and when the messenger arrives, so the messenger uh, is pretty late, and he said, how come you're so late? And the messenger said, nobody walks faster than me. So that's why nobody came here first. It's just using the words nobody to make a person out of it, an entity out of it. Well, the reason why we use the words nobody or nothing or emptiness, not as if it's a, a thing, but there's nothing there. Is that clear enough? Okay, yeah. Okay, so let's carry on. So, this is what happens when you attain to jhana. The other thing I wanted to mention is about doubt. Because doubt is like kind of a hindrance, but when it goes, there is this... It's hard to find actually words to express that once you see something or you know something, you realize something, when doubt is overcome, you know for absolutely certain that what you're experiencing is the truth. And this is hard to explain, but you can see there's no desire left in there's no sense of self wanting something. It's never seen as an attainment. It's never seen as something which you have more than something you've lost. And the realization comes with a sense of absolute certainty. A certainty which you don't get in anything else in this world. I look outside and I see the statue of the Buddha and the plinth and the trees outside. And that's pretty certain, but it hasn't got the same sense of certainty as when those five hindrances are gone and you see something, see some truth about the nature of your existence or life. That could be just projected onto me. This is one of the reasons. I've never seen the matrix. But people say the matrix, that people are living in a world of total delusion, they take that to be the truth. And how can they find out if it's the truth or not? Well, what is the truth? Or even uh, the idea in science that you, know, you have to experience these things for yourself to actually to prove they exist. But now, how can you experience things for yourself? What you do experience, can you trust that? Uh, when I was, I think, Socrates saying he was in a cave uh, seeing a shadow of a butterfly. You know, who's in the cave? Is the butterfly in the cave? Or is he just dreaming this? Because sometimes one's cognition, we can assume it's true, but has it been perverted, distorted? A lot of times people see something, is it real? And the example of that, which I love saying, please excuse me if I say it too much, was that um, uh, levitating flower pot, which was done in, by one of my mates, uh, Professor Bernard Carr, over in Imperial College in London, where the, they got, they got so only physicists, trained scientists were allowed to, to view this flower pot levitating. It did actually rise above the table, but the scientists were fooled. They didn't realize a big electromagnet underneath the desk. 
But because they thought that levitation was impossible, that a few of them said it didn't happen. Even though they had videos of it, photographs of it, they were looking with their eyes wide open, but their brains would not admit that that flower pot lifted above the table significantly. Their wanting, their views, had actually distorted their perception. They could only see what their views, perceptions allowed them to see. So sometimes the idea of seeing something and that's directly able to confirm the truth of something, you can only trust your sight and trust your perceptions, trust your thoughts only when those five hindrances have been abandoned, when they're not there. Otherwise, you, c you can't see this. There was one of our monks years ago, his good friend, he was an American in the Vietnam War and he got shot in the back of the head. And so when he was a Marine and so that as they were putting him into the helicopter, he got hit by shrapnel again, he thought he was going to die. He woke up being operated on and when he came out from the anaesthetic, uh, the doctors told him, he said, well, we've had to take out a big lump of your brain and it's a part which is to do with, with sight. So when, you come, when we take the bandages off, you're not going to be able to see, you're going to be blind. Of course that was a big shock for him, but when they did take the bandages off, he could see. And he was so high after that, he had a nice pension, a thousand dollars a month, and so he was living a life of bliss, not having to work. And then he, uh, he told me that he was in a baseball game and somebody hit the ball in his direction, he went to catch it and then the ball suddenly disappeared. He just he following the ball's trajectory and then it vanished. And then it came out of the nothingness and he could follow the flight again and catch it. He had a blind spot because of the operation. And he said, what happens if you have a blind spot? You can't see it. Your brain fills in the gaps of what should be there. Not what is there, but what should be there. And when you had something like uh, a ball flying through the air, that was the first time he could realize that part of his sensual vision, the sight vision, was just not there. All the times before, the brain had actually, uh, where there was a cloud, had continued the cloud, what he'd expect it to be. And he couldn't tell the difference. And that was just a good example of bare attention is not sufficient. You do need the five hindrances to go before you can trust what you see and what you hear, what you feel. It's scary. What is truth? Truth is what you can uh, see, feel, know when the five hindrances are gone. How do you know the five hindrances are gone? Because you've been meditating. Okay. How then, Anuruddha, do you think of me? How then, Anuruddha, do you think? Do you all think of me in this way? The Buddha has not abandoned the outflowings. Sometimes we call these the taints 
But the word is asawas. It literally means flowing out. And I like that saying of flowing out because when you are peaceful, you don't flow out anywhere. You stay inside. But when you want something, when you have ill will, when you're restless or tired or doubt, you're always going out for something. Your mind is not staying at home. It always does something. That's why I prefer the translation outflowings instead of taints. The Buddha has not abandoned the outflowings that defile, bring renewal of being, or rebirth, give trouble, ripen in suffering. Why does the Buddha say renewal of being rather than just reincarnation or rebirth? And the reason is because birth is usually into the realm of the human beings or animals. If you become a heavenly being, you don't get born in heaven. You reappear as a fully formed heavenly being. You don't go to school anymore. You just appear and there you are. The Buddha has not abandoned the outflowings that defile being renewal of being, give trouble, ripen and suffering, suffering lead to future rebirth, aging and death. That is why the Buddha uses one thing after reflecting, endures another thing after reflecting, avoids another thing after reflecting, and removes another thing after reflecting. He doesn't just uh, abandon everything. Sometimes he resists things, doesn't need them. And that is why sometimes he endures things, say a, 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 a mosquito is biting, you don't squash it, it just, it's only a little thing. And why you use another thing after reflecting, such as the food and the medicines. Why do you use the food? Some of the food I get is very delicious. Should I not eat it because it's delicious? No, it's what you do, you remember the purpose of the food you eat. It's actually for being healthy, for being able to be strong enough to live the holy life. Not for fattening, not for fun, not for beautification, only for the maintenance of this body to keep it healthy, to live the holy life. Thinking thus I will avoid hunger without overeating, so that I will I continue to live blamelessly and at ease. That's a little verse we used to chant before we ate. Uh, no, Venerable Sir, we do not think of the Buddha in that way. We think of the Buddha in this way. The Buddha has abandoned the outflowings that defile, being renewal of being, give trouble, ripen in suffering, and leave to future rebirth, aging, and death. That is why the Buddha uses one thing after reflecting, enjoys another thing after reflecting, avoids another thing after reflecting, and removes another thing after reflecting. Good, good, Anuruddha. The Buddha has abandoned the outflowings that defile, bring renewal of being, give trouble, ripen in suffering, and lead to future birth, aging and death. He has cut them off at the root, made them like a palm stump, done away with them so that they are no longer subject to future arising. Just as a palm tree whose crown is cut off is incapable of further growth, so too the Buddha has abandoned the outflowings that defile, cut them off at the root, made them like a palm stump, done away with them, so they're no longer subject to future arising. And that's actually just like the description of enlightened beings. An enlightened being cannot just go backwards and revert to being 
just uh, a putu chana. Uh, even if you're an enlightened being, you can't go back to being a, a, a non-returner, an out, or a once-returner. These, once these things are cut off, they're cut off for good. And they carry on. What do you think, Anuruddha? What purpose does the Buddha see that when a disciple has died, he declares his reappearance thus? So-and-so has reappeared in such and such a place, so-and-so has reappeared in such and such a place, where they've been reborn or reappeared. Venerable Sir, our teachings are rooted in the Buddha, guided by the Buddha, have the Buddha as their resort. It would be good if the Buddha would explain the meaning of these words. Having heard it from the Buddha, the monks will remember it. Anuruddha, it is not for the purpose of scheming to deceive people, or for the purpose of flattering per people, or for the purpose of gain, honor, or renown, or with the thought, let people know me thus, that when a disciple has died, the Buddha declares his appearance thus, so-and-so has reappeared in such and such a place, so-and-so has reappeared in such and such a place. Rather, it is because there are faithful clansmen inspired and gladdened by what is lofty, who when they hear that, direct their minds to such a state, and that leads to their wealth and happiness for a long time. This is another reason I wanted to uh, read this sutta today, because in a couple of weeks' time, if you go to Bodhinyana Monastery for the entry to the rains day, I always tell the story of why we offer these robes at the rainy season. They're called Vasikasatika, and it came from the story of uh, Wisaka, who invited the monks to a meal at her house, and when the meal was ready, she sent one of her maids, servants, to the monastery, invite the monks now. But when she got to the monastery, there was a big rainstorm, and so the monks took off all their robes and were bathing naked in the rain. And the reason they did that was because the rivers, where they usually would bathe, would be flooded. It would be dangerous to bathe in them. They were taking advantage, like a shower, from the skies to bathe. But when the maid saw them, she thought, this is, can't be a monastery. There's like naked ascetics here, not Buddhist monks. So she went back and told her, her uh, mistress, uh, Wesaka, so I went there, but there's no monks there, only naked men. And so Wesaka was very smart and said, go back and just invite them again. So she went back and by this time the monks had dried themselves off and had dressed properly. And so he said, oh, the meal is ready now. And as a result of that experience, Visakha said uh, to the Buddha, can you please give me the privilege of offering rainy season bathing cloths to the monks so they never have to bathe naked in the rain anymore. And also she said, can I also give some bathing sets to the nuns as well. And can I also, um, while I'm at it, <laughs> if you're going to ask for something, go for broke. <laughs> and so can I also, people, monks or nuns who arrive at this monastery for the first time, can I always invite them to come to my house the first day because they don't know where to go on arms round yet. And uh, when they are sick, please come to my house, anything you need, I can actually supply medicines for you not just for the ones who are sick, but for the ones who look after the sick. And not only that, that before they leave to go off after the rains retreat, 
Please come to my house and I can give you whatever you need for your journeys. And the Buddha said, that's asking a lot. I said, why? She asked it just for her to be able to do that, no one else. Why? And that's when she said that when I find out because the Buddha would announce to people this monk got a jhana, this monk got enlightened or whatever, then when I hear that, I would know that I had given a robe or food or medicine to these monks and that would give me so much joy that you know, I helped them uh, in their achievement of deep meditation or enlightenment. And that gave me so much joy and that will be a cause for my own um, <laughs> progress on the path. And the Buddha said, exactly, well done, you understood it well. And so he gave her that privilege as long as she was alive to offer these clothes, these robes to monks and nuns, food and her medicines so that they, when she heard they were enlightened, that she would get so much joy and happiness that she helped in that. So that's one of the reasons why the Buddha, and I mention that now because you know, reinforcing that story which I will tell on the entry to the rains day, why we do things that's this way. So it's because they are faithful people inspired and gladdened by what is lofty, who when they hear that direct their minds to such a state and that leads to their welfare and happiness for a long time. And so here a monk hears that a bhikkhu named so-and-so has died, the Buddha has declared of him he was established in final knowledge. He has either, in other words, enlightened. He either seen that venerable one for himself or heard it said of him. That venerable one's virtue was thus. His state of stillness was thus. His wisdom was thus. His abiding in attainments was thus. His deliverance was thus. Recollecting his faith, virtue, learning, generosity and wisdom, he directs his mind to such a state. In this way a bhikkhu has a comfortable abiding. In other words, they see this was supposed to be an enlightened being. How did they practice? And they practice in the same way. Here a monk hears thus, this bhikkhu named so-and-so has died, the Buddha has declared of him, with the destruction of the three fetters and with the, oh no, I've gone past, destruction of the five lower fetters, he has reappeared spontaneously in the pure abodes and there will attain final nibbana without ever returning from that world. This is a non-returner. And he has either seen that venerable one for himself, and that inspires to see that type of practice. He directs his mind to such a state. In this way too, a bhikkhu has a comfortable abiding. And here a bhikkhu hears thus, the bhikkhu named so-and-so has died. The Buddha has declared of him with the destruction of the three fetters and with the attenuation of lust, hate and delusion, he has become a once-returner, returning only once to this world to make an end of suffering. He has either seen that venerable one for himself he knows these practice and he directs his mind to such a state. In this way too, a bhikkhu has a comfortable abiding. Here a bhikkhu he abides, hears thus, the bhikkhu named so-and-so has died. The Buddha has declared of him with the destruction of the three fetters, he's become a stream-enterer, no longer subject to rebirth in the lower realms, bound for deliverance, headed for enlightenment. And he's either seen that verbal one for himself, or seen his practice, he directs his mind to such a state, in that way too, a bhikkhu has a comfortable abiding. Here a bhikkhuni hears us, a bhikkhuni named so-and-so has died. The Buddha has declared of her, she was established in fine knowledge, an arahat, and she has either seen that sister for herself or heard it said of her, 
that sister's virtue was thus, her state of stillness was thus, her wisdom was thus, her abiding in attainments was thus, her deliverance was thus, recollecting her faith, virtue, learning, generosity and wisdom, she directs her mind to such a state, in this way a bhikkhuni has a comfortable abiding. And similarly a bhikkhuni hears that the bhikkhuni named so-and-so has died, the Buddha has declared of her the destruction of the five lower fetters, she has reappeared spontaneously in the pure abodes and will there attain far nibbana. He has declared of her with the destruction of the three fetters and with the attenuation of lust, hate and delusion. She has become a once-returner, returning only once in this world for an end of suffering. He has declared of her with the destruction of the three fetters. She has become a stream-enterer, no longer subject to rebirth in the lower realms, bound for deliverance, heading for enlightenment. And she has either seen that sister for herself she directs her mind to such a state, in this way too a bhikkhuni has a comfortable abiding. And here a man lay follower hears thus, that man lay follower named so-and-so has died, the Buddha has declared of him, the destruction of the five lower fetters, he has reappeared spontaneously in the pure abodes and will there attain final nibbana without ever returning for that world. Uh, he declared of him, destruction of the three fetters with the attenuation of lust, hate and illusion, they have become a once return, returning only once to this world, making an end of suffering. Declared of him with the destruction of the three fetters, he has become a stream enterer, no longer subject to rebirth in the lower realms, bound for deliverance, headed for enlightenment. And he has either seen that venerable one for himself or heard it said of him, the venerable one's virtue was thus, his state of stillness was thus, his wisdom was thus, his abiding in attainments was thus, his deliverance was thus. Recollecting his faith, virtue, learning, generosity and wisdom, he directs his mind to such a state. In this way too, a man lay follower has a comfortable abiding. Here a woman lay follower declares us. The woman lay follower named so-and-so has died, the Buddha has declared of her. With the destruction of the five lower fetters, she has appeared spontaneously in the pure abodes and will there attain final nibbana without ever returning from that world. He has declared of her with the destruction of three fetters and with the attenuation of lust, hate and delusion. She's become a once returner, returning only once in this world to make an end of suffering. Or he has declared of her with the destruction of the three fetters. She's become a stream enterer, no longer subject to rebirth in the lower realms, bound for deliverance, headed for enlightenment. And she has either seen that sister for herself or heard it said of her, that sister's virtue was thus, her state of stillness was thus, her wisdom was thus, her abiding in attainments was thus, her deliverance was thus. Recollecting her faith, virtue, learning, generosity and wisdom, she directs her mind to such a state. In this way too, a woman lay follower has a comfortable abiding. So Anaruta, it was not for the purpose of scheming to deceive people, or for the purpose of flattering people, or for the purpose of gain, honour and renown, or with the thought that people know me to be thus, that when a disciple has died, the Buddha declares their reappearance thus, so and so has reappeared in such and such a place, so and so has reappeared in such and such a place. Rather it is because there are faithful clansmen inspired and gladdened by what is lofty, who when they hear that direct their minds to such a state, and that leads to the welfare and happiness for a long time. So sometimes the Buddha would announce, you know, who had attained what, where they had gone. For people's um, inspiration. This is what the Buddha said, the Venerable Anarudha was satisfied and delighted in the Buddha's words. Okay, some questions?
Um, in the passage, it mentioned about um, the Buddha abandoning outflowings. Um, I don't yeah. know what you mean by outflowings. I was wondering if you could expand on that, please. I did mention that earlier. It is just basically the defilements, greed, hatred, and delusions, but looked upon as um, they usually have like three uh, asavas. Uh, was it Kamasawa, Bawasawa, Awijasawa? So, you know, one is just, you know, for desire itself, looking for something to satisfy you outside. And Bawasawa, by going outside, to have a more of a sense of being, of an existence. And Awijasawa is just out of delusion. I should actually mention the bottom of this sutta. Hey, it's not there. Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, so ignorance. I did actually mention something else at the bottom. Bhikkhus, this is said, a first point of delusion, awija, is not seen, such that before this there was no delusion and afterwards it came into being, no like creation or big bang of delusion. But still delusion is seen to have a specific condition. I say monks that delusion has a nutriment, a food. It is not without nutriment. What is the nutriment for delusion? It should be said the five hindrances. That is what feeds and strengthens delusion. So that we Jasava going out into the world not to actually to get more knowledge, but actually sometimes to distort knowledge. Thank you. Any other questions on the floor here? Okay, now we have questions from overseas. Thank you. From Singapore. Bante, some people say you monks are trying to escape from life. Do you agree? No, we're trying to escape from suffering. If you were in a prison forever, wouldn't you want to escape? Escape from life, that's escaping from the wrong thing. You escape from this life, you get another life, it's more of the same. So instead of escaping from life, escaping from suffering, where that suffering happens to be. Why not? But the point is, when you try to escape, and years ago I made a simile of like a prisoner, and a prisoner's in a cell, but the cell is quite nice. You can get lots of nice food, you can get a job, you can actually make some money, get some privileges, you can even marry a nice other lady in the prison somewhere, or a man, or depending on what you want. And you can have a family, little prisonettes, no, that's not, little prison kids or whatever. And you think that's your life. I'm talking about this world being a prison. And then eventually, you know, you die, but then you just get transferred to another prison afterwards in your next life. But this prison has uh, got five big walls, and those walls are sight, hearing, smell, taste, and physical touch. And for many people, that's all you know. And you try to meditate, but you have this guard, this prison officer, his name is Will. And Will will never allow you to be still, always disturbing you, making you do things. That's like an asawa. But then after a while, you get fed up with like being in prison all the time. It feels okay, as, as, as much as you know. But then one day, 
you know, you find there's been another prisoner in the cell before. Please excuse me, I called him Zach. Zach Yamuni. <laughs> this <is> Buddha. <laughs> and he left this escape plan. You find that in your cell, if you pick up one of the big stone uh, floor slabs, that there's a tunnel under there. And the tunnel is called Eightfold Path. And the Eightfold Path, first you have to realize it's worthwhile you know, going in there and getting to the end of that path. You have to have that right view. And you have to have the proper intention of kindness and renunciation, because you can't take anything with you. You have to leave more and more stuff behind the deeper you go into that tunnel. And you also, you also have, you know, that's, that's the right intention. You also have to have the right speech, action, livelihood. Otherwise, you won't be able to get anywhere through that tunnel. And also just the right uh, type of effort, too much effort, and then you make a noise and there will be, you'll be caught, too little effort, you won't get anywhere. And you have to have mindful, very aware of where you're going and not to make any noise. And eventually that stillness to get to the end of the tunnel. And if you go to the end of the tunnel, you get these beautiful senses of freedom. You're outside the tunnel, outside the prison, in the realm of the mind. And you find that this is the path to freedom. Yes, it is escaping from life. And quite honestly, each one of you, wouldn't you like to escape from life? Or do you want to come back here again? When you die, that's no escape, you get reborn again. Do you want to be a, a little kid again? Do you really want to go to school again? Do you really have, want to... Many, how many of you are retired? It's only a temporary retirement. You have to go back to, to work again in your next life. And don't say, no, I don't want to. <laughs> Sometimes it happens and then you're back again. So anyway, yes, we are trying to escape from suffering. We're not just trying, that's what the Buddha asked us to. And it's worth it, it's obvious. But you can't try to escape, because trying just makes more life. You're still, you renounce and life disappears. That's his escape. Uh, from Ignatio, do heavenly beings experience old age and illness? No. What they um, arise in a heavenly state, perfectly formed, but then they start to fade away. And that's the suffering, realizing all that joy and happiness and bliss for so many years is now disappearing. They can't control it. Not old age and illness, but actually disappearance in, a, in an unpleasant way. Another one from Singapore. The Buddha always taught craving is the cause of dukkha. How is asa was related to, to craving or dhanha? Dhanha is like thirst, wanting something. It's the real meaning, it's used in other senses, of somebody being really thirsty. And either small amount of thirst or big thirst. Calling it craving is a bit too intense for the actual meaning of that word dunha. Dunha is the cause of suffering, yeah, but it's wanting this, wanting that. It's actually understanding that here is where I am, 
this is where I want to be, that separation from where you want to be, that suffering. So aren't any type of wanting at all. Here I am, this is where I want to be. And that sort of wanting between is a cause of discontent, suffering. So in order to stop those asmas going out to where you want to be, we learn as monks, we don't try to escape, we escape from wanting. We escape from trying. And then you just sit here, I keep on saying this, when you meditate, if you want to be a successful meditator, you sit perfectly still. You don't want anything in the whole world. And when you lessen that wanting, you really renounce, you find that the world disappears. Not because you want it to, or you don't want it to, it's just what happens when you're still. When things don't move, they vanish. This computer, if I don't press anything, after a while the screen will go blank. It disappears. If I don't press anything, then it'll go totally disappear. Stillness is the cause for things fading away and ceasing. Okay, any more questions from the floor? Last time for a question, because this is the last Sutta class from me until October. A long time. It's the last chance. Yeah. It's, um, uh, it's all a little bit why lay people uh, can't be fully enlightened. You saw that, well done. Yeah. I was actually surprised, I expected somebody to notice that. If you saw there, you see that uh, the Buddha declares so and so to be enlightened, monks, nuns, but not lay people. And the reason is that if a lay person does become enlightened, they've got seven days to actually join the Sangha or to die. And people think, oh, that's just a myth. And so many of those myths, which I thought, no, no way that can be true, they are actually true. The whole reason for your life force to continue you have to have a purpose for it. And as a lay person, everything which gives you the meaning to live is gone. If you're a monastic, one of the reasons why you can continue living on, and they say it's like to be a field of merit to others. Your very existence, even if you can't teach, your very existence there when people offer you something, is a huge amount of good karma for them. Just that by itself is enough for you to continue on the life force until when you die, then you totally disappear. Eddie, yeah. oh, come up to the microphone, a good exercise for you. Ajahn Brahm, I thought I read somewhere the Buddha said that lay people can gain enlightenment. But certainly Ajahn Chah, no, his book, he says lay people can gain enlightenment. If you mean so once return, uh, stream winning, once returning, non-returning, yes, of course they can. But after that, they'll be enlightened soon. But if they become enlightened as a lay person, then, you know, yeah, it's true, you can say, Eddie was fully enlightened, 
but then you pass away, you disappear, you die. You, now that, what is the cause for your life to continue on? It's not the physical health of the body, it's the mind having a purpose. And that purpose has now disappeared if you're fully enlightened as a, as a lay person. So if you really want to carry on, you just become a monk or a nun. Why not? Not, not clear on this, I'll talk to you again. <laughs> yeah, okay. And also I heard you think lay person has got a better chance, you know. I think it's like, like that, because they're suffering that? in lay life, you know, <laughs> and, and they, 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 they work harder. <laughs> they work harder. That's why I think Who I read somewhere, yeah. I'm going to read <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> sorry think, about this. <laughs> no, 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 don't say sorry. Uh -huh. It's an interesting how to people, they say what they want to hear rather than what is real. So what I said, if you actually see how the Buddha taught, what the actual the, uh, Ajahn Chah said, he said, yeah, and lay person can be enlightened in the future, but a lay person who is enlightened, uh, seven days maybe, but they have to ordain or they pass away. Or maybe just in my mind, enlightened but not fully enlightened like the Buddha. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to be fully enlightened has to be an arahat. An arahat. And you know who's fully enlightened you know, by seeing if there's any ill will, any desire left. That's why you say, you know, write four farts on this poem and it blows them all over the lake. If they were enlightened, that wouldn't react to that at all. Thank you. Okay. Yeah, go on. Yeah. It's good. I've got some questions. That's great. What's the difference that you have to become a, a monk to be enlightened and stay alive as opposed to becoming enlightened and still staying as a lay person? Would it be desires would come back? No, desires won't come back. That's the point. There'll be no sort of intention to keep your body and mind going. No purpose left. So why are you alive? We're not talking about suicide. We're talking about just the mind being so still. There's no point. There's no um, uh, fuel to keep the the body and mind going. You've done the job. You're finished. It's just what causes, especially the mind, to continue on. A purpose in life. And much of that other purpose, you feel, is just not there anymore. If you want to be a, a teacher, quite frankly, you get much more power as a teacher wearing a brown robe. So if that's really what you wanted to do, now you're enlightened to be of service to others. You know, you don't have any cravings for things anymore. That's all gone. So you just join the Sangha. That's what used to happen to people once they became enlightened or even a stream winner, or especially a non-returner. I remember just Uga, the story of Uga, 
he told his, he had four wives beforehand, he told his four wives, look, there's no way that I can act as a, a normal man anymore. So I'm going to go to the monastery. You can uh, go and uh, back to your family. I can just try and get you another man if you really want one. You can come and become a bhikkhuni with me. And so that's what happened afterwards. The whole fitting in to the world was seen very clearly. They couldn't fit into the world being a, a lay person anymore. And that's why they joined the monastic order. If they would say what they said before, like being a Pacheka Buddha, a silent Buddha, again, they would just go off into the forest. But then they would meditate and they would just disappear. There's no, they don't belong in the world anymore. Have you ever been in a lifestyle or a place, you don't feel you really belong in there? Mention that by a hundred. Multiply that by a hundred, you can actually feel what it must be like. Does that make any sense to you? Okay, thank you. Great. Okay, thank you all for listening and thank you for those questions. I think last time I did a, a Sutta class, it wasn't sort of controversial enough. We didn't actually just go deep enough to get some nice questions, so thank you for those questions. So now we can pay respects to the Buddha, Dhamma and Sangha by bowing three times, and then we can go and do what we need to do. Patipano Bhagavato Sawaka Sango Sanganamami That was good.